king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. Father God, we look to you for insight with your word. God, just a wonderful section, the Holy Spirit convicting us of our need of repentance because we're sinners and there's only one hope, it's your son. We pray, Father God, that you would help us not to loathe ourselves, but to love grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So this Bible study is going to kill two birds with one stone, uh, because as you notice in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, in our verse-by-verse study on Sunday mornings, if you've gone looking on the website, uh, it's missing. So for whatever reason, back in the day, I don't know how many years ago it was, we went through the book of Romans, uh, probably five years or so. Uh, this men's Bible study night overview, it's a little bit briefer than it would be on a Sunday morning, but it's going to serve the purpose of filling in that slot so that uh, we'll have a complete set. Uh, we might be missing another one, and I'll have to do that again. And so Yeah, so we're almost out of the woods, gentlemen, with this uh, almost uh, being taken out to the woodshed kind of thing by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Three and a half chapters of just a verbal tongue lashing, uh, convicting us of our sin, showing us because we are so dead set against admitting that we are sinners and failures and needing God's love, but if you don't know that you're uh, needing a Savior, then you're never going to hear the gospel. And so we've been seeing that and been under the fire for now, three and a half chapters. Uh, Verses 1 through 20 will bring that theme to an end. And so the good news starts at verse 21 of chapter 3, where he says, therefore, since I've totally convinced you, God speaking, that you cannot save yourself. You're hopelessly depraved and you need to be cleansed and renewed by the Spirit of God. Uh, Then he says, now time for some good news. And so, you know, once in a while I'll hear, and maybe you do, somebody say, you're just a Christian because you're afraid of going to hell. I'm like, yeah, there you go. (laughs) What's wrong with that? Self-preservation is not uh, a bad motive uh, for escaping harm. You know, if you go to the edge of a cliff and you move back, 
out of fear of stumbling over, that's not a bad thing, is it? That's probably smart, right? So chapter one was the sledgehammer to the average sinner, the regular rebel in his heart who pretends there's no God, who likes to worship uh, his own uh, gods, and, uh, you know, men and women who go after money and go after sexual immorality and live for themselves. Chapter two takes on the nice guy sinners, those who are more uh, naturally inclined to uh, towards self-control and living upright, respectable lives at the same time as being a sinner uh, and, and just more able to manage their sin better than some. And so that's chapter two, uh, saying the nicest person on the planet is headed straight to hell. That's a hard pill to swallow. That those who are naturally inclined toward kindness, who have zero faith in God and are rejecting uh, his son, uh, they have no hope at all. Their kindness, their good deeds, and all of this. And so the only hope is, is that we have a savior, right? And so uh, now he's saying here, as we pick back up, the context, the last idea was uh, Paul finished trashing the whole idea that there's any worth in trusting their uh, Jewish, uh, he called it their circumcision, which is just meaning the ritual that by which they thought they were saved. If they had been circumcised, which made you an official Jew, uh, then you don't need to worry about things. You have good deeds, you have uh, Bible knowledge, you're related to Abraham, so uh, you get a free pass to heaven. And so he's just uh, told them it doesn't work that way. Uh, so he says, he got now in chapter three, he's going to bring some counterbalance in because it may sound like he was saying your Jewishness has no worth at all. Now he says in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. And so here I'm using the New Living Translation. And when I find when things get complicated in any verse in the Old Testament or New, I will go to the NLT, New Living Translation. I really love it. It's very accurate. And what it does is it kind of clears things up. And so let's clear things up. So clarity and balance, he's saying, look, it may sound like I'm getting down on, on Jewish people and Judaism as if being Jewish or an Israelite uh, is meaningless or worthless, but actually being a Jew is a wonderful thing and has many advantages. Now, there's only one advantage that he lists here. Did you notice that? That they're entrusted with the scriptures and the re uh, scriptures and the revelation of God uh, that God entrusted. He had to start somewhere, so he picked this guy named Abraham. He said, follow me, go where I show you to go. And he crossed over. He was an idol worshiper before, uh, but he becomes the progenitor uh, of the Jewish race. And so um, 
Later in 9, he'll give all of the benefits, the advantages of being kind of first in line, first dibs on the knowledge of God with the Jews. And, and, and it was nothing in Abraham. He was an idol worshiper. He just had to start somewhere. And the privilege falls to Abraham and those related to Abraham because not because of any good thing they had done, but simply because God had chosen them to be the door through which he would bring salvation to the rest of the world. And so he'll list things. In Romans chapter 9, he lets loose. He says, uh, they're the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. Uh, he made covenants with them. He gave them his commands. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving the wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite. Christ the Messiah, though he be God, he was also in his human nature related to them. So this is an amazing stuff. So here's what he says. He's saying there in verses uh, 4 and 5, right? there well he will get to that place here uh he's saying listen he focuses on this god's word was entrusted to them in other words back in the day the jews were the only ones on the planet who knew how creation happened how the fall happened uh, how the nations happened how languages happened and god's plan of redemption and so uh, they were set up so Paul has to quickly say, now another counterbalance. Yes, they have great advantage. However, he says, and puffed up as they might have been, he says, being given great advantages in life doesn't guarantee you won't fumble the ball. And in this case, though they had every advantage, the greatest privilege on earth to know God and to know his plan, they fumbled the ball. So that's it. You say, no, they have great advantage, but no, they fumbled the ball. And so just be, and here's his point, just because they had a great advantage doesn't mean that they were guaranteed salvation. They were just set up better than others. And they did not use that advantage to their benefit, it would be kind of like, kind of like children who uh, grow up in a Christian home. They've heard the word of God. They've been protected. They've been prayed over. They've been prayed with. They've been taught to pray. They've been exposed to Bible teaching. Uh, mom and dad modeled it perfectly. Of course not, but it was modeled. Grace and mercy and the terms in the Bible. Youth camps, youth pastors, all kinds of love in the church. They're set up. But that doesn't save them, does it? That's his point. The privilege, the honor, the setup, the advantage cannot save you. It has to happen in your heart and uh, a surrender there. And so now he's saying, now they fumbled the ball. Now, what does that say about the owner of the team? So if the football team uh, throws the game, they're a bunch of losers. They don't do anything the coach said. They just ruin everything. What does that say about 
the owner of the team and his promises and his plans. So he's going to say, well, verse 3 through 4, true, some of them were unfaithful. Failed to believe is the term. But just because they were unfaithful, did not put their trust in him. Does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him in Psalm 51, you will be proved right, O Lord, in what you say, and you will win your case in court. So that's the deal. They were set up for uh, success. They fumbled the ball. So uh, do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? No, there's still a God. He has made promises, and just because his A, a game team, the A string, first string, what do you call them? First string players blew it. It doesn't mean that his plan is over. He's going to come through. And actually, the Gentiles are the second string players who are the heroes in the story. Now, at the end of time, which could be tomorrow uh, at the apocalypse, as Romans chapter 11, verse 26 says, that uh, Israel as a nation, as a whole, will turn to Messiah, right? So, but it's only after the world is pretty much destroyed. And so, yeah, so he's saying, are the, God's promises in God's people have failed? So what about God's promises? Are they null and void? Are they going to fail too? And he says, no. If everyone in the, verse 4, love it. If everyone in the whole world's a liar, there's one person who we can depend on, and that would be God. I, I like that. I like Numbers 23. It says, listen up. God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't change his mind like human beings do. Has he ever promised without doing what he said? That's Numbers uh, 23. Now, Paul will quote their King David in Psalm 51 in the text before you. He says, God, your word is good, God, and your promises are true, as everyone will see at the end of time. In other words, that you're, you're going to win the case. And, uh, you know, what's the case? What's the jury trying to decide? Is there a God? And can he deliver on his promises? And the point of the scriptures is you will all see every human being, saved or not, Old Testament and new, anybody who's ever been created will all live to see that God's word never returns void, that every single thing he's ever said and intended will come about when all the wicked are subdued, the earth is renewed to its former glory and better and there's a visible reigning Lord and Savior, God, reigning on his rightful throne. And then every mouth will be silenced before God, and uh, he will be um, proven credible as to all of his uh, claims. And so at that time, uh, the world will know what we know by faith, what Joshua said. Joshua 21, not one of all of the Lord's good promises have failed. 
Every one was fulfilled. Joshua 21 and verse 45. And so not only will God's truth prevail as a result of Israel's disobedience, as a result of the first string players failing, it actually will benefit God's purposes by showcasing his glory and salvation. So, which leads to some interesting thinking, that by their disobedience, God is glorified and grace is manifest more clearly. So here's the thinking, verses 5 through 9. But some might say, okay, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair, then, for him to punish us? Now, this is merely human point of view. He's saying, you're, you're thinking like human beings. All right. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, he would not be qualified to judge the world. But, someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us apostles uh, by claiming that we actually teach the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say those kinds of foolish things deserve to be condemned. So here's the twisted way of thinking. Paul hears them in their minds. Well, okay, if we Jews have failed and it served God's purpose and plan, why should he still be mad at us? And punish us. Why am I still responsible if I promoted something good uh, there? And this is called stinking thinking. You know, it's just not right. Um, they're, they're, they, it seems unfair in their minds that God would judge them as sinners uh, when the good things God used to bring, bring something, the, the good things have come out of their wrongdoing, their bad doing. So verses 5 and 7 really point this out. He says, God is unfair, you say? Come on. He's the judge of the earth. So if he's the judge of the earth, yeah, there's no way that he could be unfair because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God... Whatever it looks like and appears to man, God can never be responsible for any kind of error, any kind of injustice, any kind of sin, any kind of evil, because it's impossible for God not to be morally pure. He is morally perfectly excellent in every way. Amen. And so, yeah, saying twisted thinking, and it's commonplace. You know, we like to excuse or minimize our bad behavior but simply because God used it in a redemptive way. He's called Redeemer. He will always redeem. So we say, see, it's not so bad. The adultery. You know, it brought a little baby into the world, right? Yeah, it brought a little baby in the world, and God's going to bless that baby, uh, especially depending on that baby's disposition toward him but the adultery is still adultery you see this uh, thinking does work for the victim of evil it really does work to be able to say look uh, look at the way God 
use the evil thing that was meant to harm me for good. Now that works. You should adopt that attitude as a victim. But still, as Joseph Brothers, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see that? And it comforts Joseph, but it doesn't excuse the brothers, and they're accountable. Should they not repent, they're accountable. They're still accountable. Even when you do repent, sometimes there's some residual things that you have to deal with, but that's the idea. It would be like Pilate saying, oh, how can you blame me? It was your plan to be crucified. You came to die. I just helped facilitate it. Oh, you want you were tested and you were given free will and you chose to condemn somebody you said was innocent. You're culpable. You see, he had free will. And if Pilate wanted to get out and say, my wife had a terrible dream about you, I'm out. You find somebody else to condemn him. God would have found somebody, and somebody would have raised his hand and said, I want to play the villain. You see? So, yes, it's hard to understand things, but the bottom line is, just because God could, and I've said this before, I saw a mound of manure once driving through Petaluma. There's a lot of those mounds. And a bunch of daffodil growing on top. We are always responsible for the manure pile, and he always gets the glory for the daffodils, and never the two shall meet. Amen? Do you understand that? Okay. We like to say, look at the daffodils, thanks to me. No, look at the manure, thanks to you. <laughs> All right. So, um, Paul just says, that's just dumb thinking. It's foolishness. Um, and then verse 8, he says, and we're actually accused of this. He says, I hear this all the time because I preach grace. So, And where grace, where sin abound, grace even more. So he says, I hear this all the time. So, uh, so you know what Paul's really saying? He's saying we're saved by grace, so live it up. Because the more you party, the more you live it up, the more you sin, the greater the glory you see. And he says, you know what? People who say that, they deserve to go to hell. That's what it means. They deserve the condemnation. What's condemnation? To perish. So people who say that, they deserve what they're going to get, okay? Even if it's not as harsh as that. So uh, we transition now. So, yeah, great advantages being a part of the chosen people. And here comes another counterbalance, okay? 9 through 12. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Because the last statement was, oh, Jews have great benefit, right? So I guess they're better than everybody else. Uh, well, no, not at all, because haven't we covered this, guys? I've already shown you that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, uh, are under the power of sin. As the scripture says, uh, in Romans 14, 1 through 3, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one seeks God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. So he's saying that to Jews about the advantage of being Jews from the Jewish scriptures that condemn every living human being, whether you're Jew or not. So he's going, how can Jews be cut above if our own scriptures say 
that firing squad to the human pride and ego of thinking, well, maybe Jews are, you know, have this special advantage uh, or are a cut above. He just sort of brings out the AK-47 here, and he's just going to fire now. This is it. You know when the fireworks, the last thing that happens is the boom, 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 and you know it's over, right? This is what he's doing right here. There's going to be eight of them. He's going to the Old Testament, and he's firing buckshot everywhere to just say, if I haven't convinced you in three and a half chapters, I've got like three verses to do it, and watch out. You're all going to get it. So this is what he does. He says, uh, listen up. The Psalms say, there's not one person who's ever lived who's not a moral loser. Every single human being. And this is hard for even Christians to hear. It makes us squirm even. Every single mouth breather, every single person with a heart, anyone who's ever been born and lived to talk about it is a moral loser. Can't save yourself. And there's nothing good about you. Whoa. That's crazy. Well, from God's point of view, and as we're talking about what God defines as good, I mean, if there's nothing good about you, why? There's nothing good about you because you're capable of murder and, and your mouth is an open sewer. And from your heart, a cesspool comes the stench of death. So he has to, he's clubbing, he's just clubbing down the male ego that says, no, I'm, there's something good about me. Comparatively speaking, you're not an axe murderer. Congratulations. Let's give it up for you. You're not a serial killer. You know, come on. It's in us all. We are all spiritual lepers capable of any vile deed. That's the deal. Paul says about himself, you know, that's a big thing. So to the list, he just nails it. Nobody's wise. Look at follow with me. Nobody's wise. If they were, they wouldn't be turning away from God and destroying themselves by sinning. So nobody's wise. Nobody seeks God out or he wouldn't have to draw them. They're all running away. So, so nobody seeks seeking him. He has to turn them around from running away from him. Everyone prefers darkness and falsehood. Everyone is rendered useless. What does he mean by that? He's saying, well, what good is a servant who hates their master and won't do a thing he asks them to do? Worthless. Wow. So nobody's a good person. He repeats it there. No, not even one. Remember when Jesus said, when someone came up to him and said, good master. He goes, hold on. Why are you calling me good? Nobody good except God. So are you catching on? You're calling me good because you're catching on that I am God? Because that's the only reason you could call me good. Because there's only one who's good. Jesus quoted this. It's just amazing. Let's finish up here. There's more. But wait, there's more. <laughs> uh, verses 13 through 18. 
Their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies, Psalm 5 and verse 9. Snake venom drips from their lips, Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10, verse 7. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace, Isaiah 59 and 7 and 8. They have no fear of God at all, no respect, no reverence for the God who made heaven and earth and them. Psalm 36 and verse 1. Out of their mouths, Jesus said, listen, you want to know what comes out of the mouth? It's what's in the heart. And what's in the heart, Jesus said, and he has a huge list. And it's just like this. Sexual immorality, lust, greed, lying, cheating, stealing. It's all in there. It's just all in there. Well, mine's not so bad. It's in there. I, you know, if you've got venom, does it matter if it's from a, a mature viper or a baby, baby rattlesnake? I've heard that baby rattlesnake venom will kill you quicker because it's concentrated in a, in a more deadly way. John Calvin said, these are enthusiastic killers. That in all of our hearts, if you've ever said drop dead to somebody or ever hated somebody with enough anger, you're right there. John Calvin, in short, the fear of God is a bridle to restrain our wickedness. And when it's lacking, men feel at liberty to indulge in every kind of wickedness. Uh, let's finish up. I think he's made his point. 19 and 20, and we're done. Obviously, God's commands apply to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. Here's the whole reason you have Moses' laws, the Ten Commandments, the 613 actual commands in the Old Testament. Here's the reason why. To keep people from having excuses to show the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the Bible commands. The commandments simply show us how sinful we are. And uh, Galatians chapter 3 will say in the New Testament, here's the reason the commandments came. They came to take your hand and, and, and lead you to the hand of a savior. Because the commandments say, do this or die. And you realize, I can't do that, so I'm going to have to die. Therefore, here's a savior saying, hey, are you under a death sentence? Yes, I am. Do you want me to save you? Yes, I do. That's the whole purpose of the law, to keep society in check, for sure. But how, what a relief to know God knows I can't keep them. I'm incapable, and that he had to save me in a way that had zero to do with my ability to be good. He had to find a way that, that to save somebody that has nothing to do with my will or my power or my strength or my goodness. That, that's really a, a wonderful point. It's freeing. One of my favorite songs is this rock song that was just, it's okay, it happens. Uh, Listen, I'll close up with this. He's going to say in Romans chapter 4, coming up, because the good news starts now. 
right now. You know, not tonight, sadly. <laughs> but next time, we're at, we, we made it, right? Now it's like, are you convinced? Yeah. Who's going to save me? And he's going to say, let me show you, tell you about a way that God reveals through the gospel of getting right with God that has nothing to do with your goodness or your efforts, but everything to do with trusting the one who did it for you. Here's the verse in Romans 4 and verse 5. People are declared right with God, not because of their own goodness, but because they believe in him who justifies the ungodly. My favorite verse in the Bible. Absolutely, 100%. Like on my on my death stone, whatever that thing's called, a tombstone, right there, that I believed in the one who justifies means acquits, pardons from all sin and wrongdoing. I put my faith in the one who who justifies who? The good guy, the guy who's trying all the time, the guy who preaches really good sermons. Uh-uh, no, no. The guy who believes in the one who justifies the unrighteous. The word is wicked. He justifies the wicked, not the good guy. The wicked. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that though we are, apart from you, wicked, 100% all the way, you are the God who has made a way for wicked people to come to you because your son became as he were wicked, though he was sinless. On our behalf, he died for us and he died as us. And he became that wickedness. Every wicked thought, every evil deed, paid for it full and full, God. Thank you for making it easy. And the way, God, get this through to us, God, the way that we got saved is the way we have to live. You're not expecting our good efforts to keep us because they never saved us to begin with. Help us to love your grace. And to have peace in our hearts, knowing that it's okay when we realize our total depravity. Because that's who we are without you. And that's how much more amazing is your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.